today is, has been declared by our president to be a national day of prayer. Um, we understand that uh, the, uh, for, so I'm, I'm not a virologist, I'm not a medical doctor, um, so I depend upon the information that is passed down um, that is substantiated by uh, the claims and, and the science that we understand. Um, you know, one of the statistics was that 50,000 people died last year of influenza. Um, and, uh, but the, and, and so sometimes we look at the coronavirus and we, we see the overall mortality rate and the percentage is not very high. Um, but the issue is the mortality rate is very high for those who are immunocompromised and those who, you know, obviously weakened immune systems already have pre-existing conditions. Um, so, uh, you know, please keep in mind you're not only trying to keep yourself healthy, but you're trying to keep your loved ones uh, healthy as well. Um, so uh, we want to we pray. I mean, this, is, this goes to show you the power um, that uh, something has uh, as it crosses borders and reaches around the world. Um, and and not to not to be hyper spiritual, but just consider for a moment if the church did what the church is supposed to do, and was actively proclaiming the gospel and sharing the message of Jesus Christ as actively as we are commanded to do, how quickly that can go around the globe. And I really, honestly, I, I just need to share something with you. This this uh, this past week, uh, the Lord really. Uh, I was driving Wednesday. Um, and uh, during a, a worship song that came on on my uh, speakers, uh, radio, whatever, um, the Lord really impressed upon me just, I think, a word, uh, a, a prophetic word for our church. And so I'm going to try to give it to you as best as I can. Um, what I really felt like the Lord was saying is that we, we have to understand that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Now, the scripture goes over that analogy on many occasions. And what I felt like the Lord was saying to us is that the, the groom is ready to get his bride. I mean, have you ever met a groom that wasn't anxious for the wedding day? Um, he is ready to come get his bride. He is prepared. He is ready. And I felt like the Lord was saying the problem isn't the groom. The problem is the bride. The problem is that the bride is dancing and spinning and enjoying her her engagement, she's enjoying her singleness. She's perfectly happy being single. She's perfectly happy not yet being married. And I felt like that was such a strong rebuke against the church that sometimes we get so busy in our activities, we forget that our heart and our desire, as, as it says in the book of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say to, the, to Christ, say to the groom, come. Maranatha means come quickly. That's our desire. There are some churches that teach this theology. It's called Seven Mountain Theology, where we are supposed to be, the church is supposed to be infecting these seven different areas of uh, our society, education and finance and government and all of these seven different things. And that's not necessarily bad for us to be involved in, but the purpose behind that theology is to for the church to be so engaged in culture that Christ won't need to return. What kind of ridiculous theology is that? Because the groom wants to return. He's prophesied he will return. And for the bride to say, we don't want you to come back, is bad theology. 
That is absolutely unscriptural. And while we should be involved in all of these different areas, we should let our voice be heard. And I think one of the problems we face today is the church didn't rise up in the 70s. It hasn't risen up in the 80s. It hasn't risen up in the 90s. And it's not rising up in 2020. We're more concerned about entertaining people and fogs and lasers and all of these different things than preaching the word of God. And the church won't be the church. And because the church won't be the church, the the groom cannot come back. Jesus says this gospel will be preached throughout the world and then the end will come. And if we're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the end can't come. And if we're a bride that would rather stay single than be married, then we are not a bride at all. So I feel like we need to make sure that we are doing exactly what God has called us to do. That we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That we are to preach everything that Jesus has said and commanded and that we are to make disciples. It's not about building buildings. It's not about creating, you know, building crowds. It's about making disciples. And we're going to look at three examples here in just a few minutes. But I felt like so strongly the Holy Spirit was impressing that word upon us. That, that the, if you could just get this picture of this bride who's hanging out with all of her attendants, all of her bridesmaids, and they're just dancing and spinning, and they're having a great time. And one of them says, Aren't you supposed to be getting married? And she says, I'm enjoying singleness. I'm enjoying the freedom I have. When the bride, when the, I'm sorry, when the groom comes back, he'll find the bride not ready. And he'll choose the bride that is ready. He'll choose the believers, the part of the church that is ready, that has been waiting, that has been proclaiming the gospel, that has been doing exactly what Christ told us to do. So, take that for what it's worth. Let that sink into your spirit and pray, Lord, am I doing that? Am I, am I living in such a way that is preventing you from returning? Uh, I believe it's in First Peter. He says that, that we can hasten the day of the Lord's coming. How can we do that? By doing what Jesus told us to do. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. If we can hasten his return, what does that also mean? We can slow it down. And I believe that's exactly what the church has done. Not this church, but the church. We have slowed down the return of the Lord because we haven't been doing what Christ has commanded us to do. So, we are going to pray. We're going to pray and we're going to ask the Lord to intervene. As I said at the beginning, we're going to ask the Lord to stop the plague, heal those that are sick, and to prevent those who aren't sick from getting sick, that the plague would stop. We have plenty of scriptural examples where people spoke the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. They came together and agreed, and, they, and the plague stopped. So one more time, would you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> and let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, on behalf of our nation. We pray, Lord, on behalf of the world, especially those areas of the world that have... Uh, uh, They don't have the access to medical care and medical technology that we may have here. But, Father, we pray, Lord, that the plague would stop. We pray, Lord, that this disease would stop in its tracks right now, right in this moment, wherever it is. Father, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would eradicate this disease.
that this disease is a product of sin and sickness and the fall. And we thank you, Lord, that we have authority over that in Jesus' name. That part of the atonement, part of the price that you paid was the healing in our bodies. By your stripes, we are healed. So we pray, Lord, for those that are sick. We ask, God, that you would raise them up from their bed of affliction, that you administer healing to them. Lord, for those of us that are not sick, we thank you, Lord, for protecting us and enabling us. And Lord, let this time, this time when the world is going crazy, this time where the world is is absolutely losing their minds and they need hope, they need a message of the gospel, they need to turn to Jesus Christ, that we are ready, that the church stands ready to preach the gospel. The church stands ready to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you, God, that the church will stand up and be the church. And so, Father, we thank you, God, for your healing. We thank you, Lord, that you minister to those that are sick right now in Jesus' name. The fever breaks. The virus stops in Jesus' name. And we pray for healing. We thank you, Lord, for churches in our area, in this, in this country, in this world, Lord, that will stand up and, and stand in the gap. Your word says, I looked for someone to stand in the gap. Destruction was coming, and there was no one to stand in the gap on behalf of my people. And your prophet stood up and says, I will go. I will declare, send me. And so, Father, we stand in the gap. We serve as watchmen on the walls, and we see destruction coming. And, Father, we beseech you, we ask you, Lord, for the plague to stop. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You may be seated this morning. I want to strongly encourage you, check on your neighbors. Two greatest commands in all of Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And your second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look after your neighbors at this time. Make sure they've got toilet paper. So I posted a meme this morning. If you're on Facebook, you might have seen it. It's a family gather around the table. And uh, the little girl says, Mommy, I don't want to eat this. And, and the mom says, Margaret, shut up and eat your toilet paper. <clears throat> Look after your neighbors, all right? Check in on them. Make sure uh, they, that they, they have what they need. Uh, please be wis- uh, use wisdom. Um, and uh, I'll tell you now, uh, we will actually do the offering at the very end of service. Our ushers will stand at the back. They'll hold the bags. That way you don't have to pass the bags. We don't have to Clorox wipe in between each person. We have Clorox wipes. We have a boatload of Purell. Um, and so uh, please don't take that, by the way. It's going for like $30,000 on eBay. Please don't take our Purell. Um, but, uh, but we have that, and so, uh, you know, but we will do the offering at the very end of service. You can give um, online. So anybody who's watching online, you can give on our church website, friendshipchurch.cc. Um, there's a text number uh, that you can give. It's, uh, what is it? Y'all don't know? Come on. Y'all should know. I should know. What is it? Uh, seven. You can text friendship to seven six nine five nine, and uh, it'll pop up with a link in a in a minute or so, and give you a link to give online. We appreciate uh, your generosity. Uh, we're obviously uh, prepared to help people as as we need to, and we understand that some folks may need assistance. So, um, are you ready for the word of the Lord this morning? Well, you came to the right place. You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. 
We've been in a sermon series called uh, In His Steps, where we have been tracing the life of Jesus Christ chronologically. Have, has anybody ever uh, quoted a scripture to you out of context? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when haven't they? You were going through something or you said something and they decided to quote a scripture and you're like, that's not what that verse means. That's not what they were talking about. Um, and so context is really important. If somebody ever takes something that you say out of context, context is incredibly important. Because you're like, well, I didn't say that. And they said, yeah, you did say that. And you're like, okay, I said that, but that's not the context with which I said it. And so we've been walking through the life of Christ chronologically because it's allowed us to see Jesus in context, where he is, where he's going, who he's with, uh, who he's talking to. And so uh, we have uh, done this uh, for several, uh, several months, and uh, so we're actually in volume three of In His Steps. Um, as we have mentioned before, uh, you can text questions during the service. So the questions will go to one of my staff members, and they'll relate it, relay it to me. And uh, so if it's a question about uh, the sermon, obviously if it's just some random question, save that for later, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer that at another time. But if it's a question regarding the passage of Scripture we're reading or something that you hear me say, then feel free to text it, and towards the end of service, we will uh, give, I'll, I'll give a few minutes to answer those questions. If you're watching online, the phone number uh, should appear in the comments for you to text questions. So uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens today. We're going to have a good time. But today is part 11 in our series, uh, I Will Follow, But. I Will Follow, But. If you've ever been on a long journey, one of the things that makes time pass a lot faster is having someone to talk to. And before the, our babies were born, Angela and I would go on road trips and we would talk the whole way there. Uh, we would talk about anything. We talked about everything. I mean, it was just, you know, sky was the limit. We, we talked about favorite foods and, and favorite places to go and places we'd love to visit sometime if we ever had the money. Rarely did we ever listen to music. Uh, we didn't need to because we enjoyed talking. It made the trip go by faster, and it also made it more enjoyable. We got to know each other better. Now, have you ever been on a trip with someone and they asked you a question you didn't want to answer? Maybe it was the question was inappropriate. Maybe it was a little too personal. Maybe it was a loaded question, and you knew it was going to start a fight. They asked you, you took the trash out before we left for two weeks, didn't you? And you knew they knew the answer, and they were setting you up because you knew you forgot to take the trash out. And for two weeks, cooked chicken was going to sit in your trash can while you were on a cruise to Jamaica. And you wanted to say, of course, but you knew it was a lie. Maybe they asked you a question and you knew they weren't going to like the answer. They didn't know what the answer was going to be, but you pretty much figured out you ain't going to like it. So it can make the trip really uncomfortable and it can leave you traveling in silence for a while. Well, in Luke chapter 9 and its parallel passage in Matthew 8, we find Jesus on his journey towards Jerusalem 
for the final time. Now, a lot is going to happen between from this journey where he where we find him now and the crucifixion that will take place in Jerusalem. So there's a ton of conversations and a a lot of events that are going to take place, which we'll cover. Uh, But that is the context for the conversations that we are about to read. I see some of you shivering, so I'm going to push the temperature up a degree here. Two? Don't go crazy. Don't go crazy. Don't go crazy. All right. Uh, So a lot happens between where he is now and where he's going to be in the crucifixion. But, But this is the context for the passage we're about to read. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the crucifixion. And as Isaiah prophesied, His face was set like a stone to accomplish his mission. Nothing would deter him. Nothing would distract him from that purpose. He wanted to make disciples along the way. He wanted as many people to come with him as possible, but he would not tolerate indecision. And one of the unique things about Jesus was that he called his disciples to follow him. That was different. In the Jewish context and culture, uh, a person would come up to a rabbi and would tell the rabbi, I will follow you, meaning that they would become their disciple and they would adhere to their way of teaching the Bible. So disciples would choose their rabbis, not the other way around. And it's much like all of you. You chose to which church you were going to attend. And you basically, when you choose a church for a long period of time, you're basically telling the pastor, I will follow you as you follow Christ. And I will learn, and you begin to learn the Bible through your pastor's way of teaching, the things that they suggest and the things that they do not suggest. And so Jesus did things differently. He actually called his disciples. Instead of waiting for them to say, I will follow you, he approached them and he said, follow me. For a well-known rabbi to walk up to someone and to tell them to follow him was very different. But Jesus saw in people what they did not see in themselves. He chose the outcasts of society, people that no rabbi would have selected. They weren't the religious scholars. They weren't the sharpest at figuring out what the, uh, the Old Testament uh, was all about and all the prophecies and all this stuff. He saw, Jesus saw the potential of what these people could be, not what they presently were. I guess, I'm I'm sure we're all thankful that Jesus did the same in us, that he saw in us what we could be, not what we were at the time he called us. In the passage today, two of the men volunteered to become Jesus' disciples One of them was called personally by Jesus to follow him. Yet each of them had excuses to say, I will follow you, but. So let's look at Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. We'll read the whole passage and then we'll break down the responses. I'm sorry, Luke 9, verse 57 through 62. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, 
follow me. So this time Jesus actually tells the disciples, he says, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Three encounters with three men and three unique responses from Jesus. We're going to look at each one to see what we can see in each encounter. As I said before, Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem with his disciples And uh, a man walks up to him. Matthew's account in Matthew 8, it says the man was a scribe. And that's an important detail. Scribes were well-educated men. Scribes wrote out copies of the Torah scrolls for synagogues to have copies of them. Uh, They recorded laws in uh, books to be passed down. So they were highly educated. And they were typically uh, wealthy and well-off because of it. And so something that Jesus has said or done has impacted this man in such a powerful way that he has left his prominent position and income to follow Jesus. And we've seen time and again that Jesus says specific things to specific people because of the motivation of their heart. What's really going on beneath the surface? And so what Jesus, the way Jesus responds is what shows us what's going on that we can't see. It shows us this man's heart. So the man said, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have, that should be holes. It says holds, sorry. Um, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his hands head. This is a weird statement, but it shows us something about this man. This first man was, this first scribe was basically saying, I will follow you, but I'm a man of wealth. So if you have your bulletins, there's a handout, you can fill in the blank. I will follow you, but I'm a man of wealth. He was a scribe. He was a man of influence. He was an educated man. He had a nice home to manage. He had possessions to care for. Whereas Jesus was committed to following God's will wherever it took him. And that meant that Jesus had sold his home and his belongings. Jesus' statement here reminds us that the path to following Christ is not easy. It is not comfortable. It can take us to places of extreme sacrifice, selling homes, selling cars, possessions, and sacrificing much for the cause of Christ. Jesus is, at this point, he's living a nomadic and transitory life, which can be a little hard for us to understand. We're not nomadic people. We get a job. We find a nice place, a nice area of town. We buy the house. And we move in. We pay off our 30-year mortgage. We, we live there and, and we, we enjoy settling in and settling down. Picking up and willfully moving around to random places does not appeal to most people. I don't even think it appeals to homeless people. 
and they do it all the time. But the kingdom of God is not about acquiring and settling. It's about spreading the gospel to every place possible. The kingdom Jesus was established the kingdom that Jesus established was not a material kingdom. It was a spiritual one. And this scribe learned you cannot follow Christ until you have counted the cost. Ask yourself this question. Is there anything I would not give up to follow Christ's call to the ends of the earth? Is there anything I would not give up to follow Christ's call to give to the end of the earth? For some people, it might be their really nice home that they've been working on and they've been remodeling and they just finished and they just got it right. And now we can settle down and enjoy it. Now their life is comfortable just the way they want it. The kids are in a good school, the best school district around. You live close to all the shopping that you need. You have a table at your favorite nearby restaurant. Your commute to work is manageable. Or your boss lets you work from home, which is even better. In short, life is good. It could be a car. It could be a boat, a hobby, a fishing spot, a college, a job. The enemy will use anything he can to take our heart away from a heart that pursues God sacrificially. Be honest with yourself. If God called you or your family to leave your home and job, sell everything you had and go onto the mission field, what would you have the hardest time giving up? You don't have to say it out loud. Just maybe jot that one down in your notes. What would you have the hardest time giving up? Whatever that is, Your heart has just revealed your idol. The thing that you treasure more than you treasure God. The thing that you value and, and pursue and appreciate more than you appreciate your relationship with the Lord. Now, don't feel bad. There's a solution for that. But the prevailing theme with all three men in this very brief passage is that when you give your life to Christ, nothing is off limits to him. There is nothing that you can withhold and say, I won't surrender this. I will not give this up. This is too precious to me. This is too important to me. You can have everything else, but you cannot have that. I will follow you, but... Later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus encountered a rich young man whose God was money. And in his response... In response to his hesitancy to sacrifice everything and follow Christ, Jesus said to his disciples, it's a very well-known phrase, even outside of the church circles, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been some commentators that have said there was some sort of needle gate where the camel had to get down on its knees. They had to take everything off the camel so that the camel could crawl through the needle gate. Guess what, folks? There were gates around the city of Jerusalem that didn't require a camel to do that. That needle gate is a nice story, but it's not, it's, it sounds good, but it's not 100% true. 
Jesus is speaking in what we understand as hyperbole. It's an over-exaggeration. He's talking about it's easier for a literal camel to go through the, a literal eye of a needle than for people whose God is wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And while you can cram a camel through that eye of a needle, it's a long, slow, and very painful process for the camel. Because it's a long, slow, and painful process for us to give up our control of our money. When you got married and your spouse said, are you going to make me a signer on your checking account? And you twinged at the thought of giving someone else all access to spending all of your hard-earned money. You thought, oh, whoa, whoa, I mean, we're one before God, but we ain't that one. I love you, but you have your checking account, I have my checking account, and I'm, if you do separate checking accounts for your own personal reasons, that's between you and the Lord. I'm just saying that if you do it because you won't give up control, our office is open Monday through Thursday for marriage counseling. We have a hard time giving up control of our money. Everybody does. Because we work for it. We earn it. Or we worked 30, 40 years for it. Now we're retired. So now we get to enjoy it without having to work for it. We put in our time. And so we don't want someone else spending our money. And so Jesus is revealing this man's motivation. That his God was wealth. Look, it's not impossible for rich people to go to heaven. There are lots of godly rich people, and they're godly, and they're going to heaven because wealth is not their God. But for so many people, wealth becomes their God. It beco- they, they do everything they can to pursue wealth. They do everything they can to protect their wealth, and they end up being servants to all the things they purchase with their wealth. You think you own that boat? That boat owns you. It's true. I, I just got an amen from the boatman himself. It's true. You, you, pay, you have to pay tags. You have to do maintenance. You have to store it. You, you buy that boat and you think you own that boat, but that boat owns you for as long as you think you own it. Or that car, or that motorhome, or that house. The things that we, per, we purchase and we buy that we think we own really own us. And that's why God is saying, don't let your heart be turned towards possessions and wealth. Don't let money be your God. Following Christ may cost you much. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you friendships, jobs, popularity, leisure time, creature comforts, or hobbies. And many people are willing to follow Christ until they find out what's involved. For ev- but, but for every excuse that people give, the Bible gives an answer. But there's no guarantee that people will accept those answers. And while the cost of following Christ is high, the benefits for being his disciple vastly outweigh any cost you could give up. Discipleship is an investment that lasts for eternity and yields incredible rewards. Real quickly, there's a relative of mine that we've been praying for, and uh, 
we, we prayed and prayed, and, and they, their, their family was away from the church, grew up in church, but was away from the Lord. The whole family was not serving the Lord and out of church and, and everything, and we were praying for them, and God opened the door. And in the span of just one conversation, some changes start to, started to take place. They got back into church, got saved, got baptized. The whole family got baptized in water. All it took was a conversation, a word at the right time, when people are hopeless and lost and need a, a message of hope and grace and love of Jesus Christ, that God sees them, knows them, and loves them, all it takes is a word at the right time. And that's the purpose of us. We are, as, as, as fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, our job is to make disciples. We are disciples who make disciples. And that discipleship, it may cost me something, but it yields Eternal rewards. A whole family is now on the path to heaven and in right standing with God because of a conversation. And it can be the same thing for you. Let's look at the second encounter. Luke chapter 9, verses 59 through 60. It says, To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This seems like an incredibly harsh response by Jesus to a bereaving man. But there's more to it than what you read. So the second man was saying, I will follow you, but my calendar's busy. For a Jewish man, honoring and caring for his parents was the most important obligation the eldest son had. How can Jesus command his followers to love their neighbors and even love their enemies and yet prohibit such a fundamental act of love and obligation to one's parents by burying them when they die? How could Jesus do that? How could Jesus say that? Well, let's look at the facts about Jewish culture so that you can see what was really going on. When a Jewish person died, they don't embalm the bodies. They bury the dead person within 24 hours, the soonest possible. And the eldest son is the one who saw to the immediate burial of his family member. Then the family went into a week-long mourning period at their home. They received visitors at their home, but the family didn't leave. And then after the burial, after this first burial, the son would rebury his father's bones in an ossuary box a year later. So he would dig up dad, take his bones, put them in a box, and put them back in. And so it was a take him and put him in a box, in a smaller box, in a smaller. That's a Disney reference. So the man said to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. To which Jesus replied, let the dead bury their own dead. If the man's father had just died, Jesus provided a harsh and unreasonable response. It would sound like heresy to a Jewish man. For, uh, and, and it would sound like a, a, a rejection against a Mosaic command to honor your father and your mother. But the context clues show us the man's father had not yet died. If his father was already dead, the son would be attending to his obligations. 
of either burying him or mourning his death in his home. The fact that he's on the road with Jesus reveals the man's father has not yet died. So what's really happening here? Jesus has told the man, follow me, and the man wants a furlough until his father dies. His elderly father, we assume, until his elderly father dies, which could last years. Jesus is on the home stretch to Jerusalem. There's no delay. There's no turning back. There's no room for half commitments. Follow or don't follow, but the choice is yours. And loyalty to Christ takes precedence over all other loyalties. This man offered an excuse that he must care for his father until he died, take care of the burial, mourn the proper length of time, wait a year, dig up daddy's bones, and then rebury him. And then he would catch up to Jesus to follow him. Jesus replied with the play on words, let the spiritually dead bury their own physically dead. Let worldly people take care of worldly rituals and obligations. But you, if you're going to be spiritually alive, go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And in mainstream Jewish society, only God could command a higher loyalty and honor over a person's parents. And Jesus is clearly invoking that in this passage. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have an urgent task, an urgent message that cannot wait. This isn't saying that we need to be insensitive to people who've died or disrespect the funeral service that's necessary for closure for people. This passage, this man, it was all about procrastination. Jesus was saying, today is the day of salvation. You can't put it off for a year plus and hope to catch up with me. I'm with you right here, right now, and you need to make a decision. Stop playing games. Stop putting off the decision. Today is the day. The third man, Luke chapter 9, 61 through 62, says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The third man was saying, I will follow you, but family comes first. Family comes first. If I were to give you a series of cards, one card said God, One card says spouse, one card says kids, one card said your job, one card says ministry. And I were to ask you to put those cards in the order in which you think they exist in priority, the vast majority of us would get it wrong. We would say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, so God has to be first. We say that, don't we? It's easy to put the card first. It's harder to do it. And then we would say, uh, well, the kids are really important. Are the kids more important than your spouse? And so we tend to get things, or ministry is really important, you know, because God first and then ministry, and, and then my job, because if I don't have my job, uh, my spouse and I are homeless, and my spouse would probably leave me if I'm homeless and have, don't have a job. So, you know, we get our priorities so out of whack. 
And this man volunteered to become a disciple of Jesus. He said, I will follow you, but first, I have some errands to run. First, I have some goodbyes to say. First, I have some necks to hug. Got some folks at my house, some family members. I've got to say goodbye to, and that's really important. Jesus counters this man's objection with another heart saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit or useful for the kingdom of God. The first person in scripture that I came across that ever looked back was Lot's wife. It's an interesting story, Genesis 19, full of interesting information. God comes down and and tells Lot and his family, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom, but I'm going to save you and your family. Get out. So Lot his wife, their daughters, were saved from the destruction of the city. And they were commanded to look straight ahead and run for their lives. Lot's wife paused, and she looked back longingly at the city. She looked back at what she was giving up. She looked back that she was giving up her home, her possessions, her knickknacks, She'd gotten the place just the way she wanted it. Lot had finally installed that butter churner that she'd been begging him for for months. She's like, now I can churn my own butter. She looked back longingly at all the things, the, the relationships. My friends are there. She died instantly because of her disobedience. When God gives you a way forward and you constantly look back, you're doing so at your own peril. The other notable person in Scripture that looked back was Elisha. 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah is walking along and he comes across the farmer Elisha. He was, Elisha was plowing his field with 12 yoke of oxen. That's 24 oxen. That means he was a wealthy, wealthy farmer. He had a lot. I mean, you got 12 yoke of oxen. You are plowing a big field. Like the state of Massachusetts, you're plowing. He probably owned like 10th of Israel with that many oxen. And so Elijah walked by, and Elijah had this prayer shawl, this this tallit um, on him, him, and, and it symbolized the authority and the anointing that he had. And so Elijah walked by Elisha, who's plowing the field, and he takes his prayer shawl and he throws it over Elisha's shoulder and then just keeps walking. And Elisha is plowing the field and, and you know, this experience it was, it freaked him out. It's like, what is going on? And it symbolized that God was uh, anointing Elisha to take up Elijah's prophetic ministry. Elisha left the oxen, he stopped the oxen, he ran after Elijah, and he said, hey, let me first say goodbye to my parents, and then I'll follow you. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? So Elijah says, do what you want to do. What is is that to me? And just keeps on walking. Elijah was like, he was was hardcore. Like, he was like, you do what you want to do, man. So Elisha comes back, he comes home, he cuts up all the wood in the, uh, on the wooden yokes, he cuts it up, makes firewood, slaughters 24 oxen, cooks them. I don't know if you know what an oxen looks like, but it's a big, big animal. 24 of them, cooks all of them, 
takes the meat, feeds his household, which has got to be massive, and I would assume neighbors, feeding everybody. Here, you have, you know, you have a leg. It's massive. It's like, like a dinosaur leg or something. It's huge. He's feeding everybody. And then when he takes care of all of those family obligations, then he goes and he catches up to Elijah. <clears throat> the objections raised by these three men in this passage in Luke chapter 9 are the same three objections that Elisha really raises in his passage. First, I'm a man of wealth. I got 24 oxen and a huge a field to plow. I can't just walk away from this. Or I'm a busy man. It's plowing season and my calendar is full. Or my family's important to me. Let me go, uh, let me say goodbye to them first and I'll catch up with you later. The difference between Lot's wife, this, these would-be disciples in Luke chapter 9, and then Elisha and how he responded is the issue of urgency. This gospel must be preached, and then the end will come. And we need to understand that someone greater than Elijah is calling us to be his disciple, so the excuses that Elisha used will not work for Jesus. One of the most heartbreaking things for a believer is when they know God has spoken to them, they know God has called them to do something, but a family member stands in the way. They might mean well, but don't be someone who prohibits the will of God in someone's life. Someone I know in the ministry knew that God had called them to accept a position at a church about four, four and a half hours away from their family. This couple had prayed and prayed, and God had provided them confirmation after confirmation that he was taking them to pastor this church. And they dreaded the conversation they had to have with their family because they knew it wasn't going to be received well. And when this pastor told his Christian parents that he had accepted the position, that they were moving and they were taking their children four hours away to pastor this church, these Christian parents replied, well, I'm going to pray against that. This couple was shocked that their parents would respond like that. They might not like it, but to actively pray against something that was God's will just was crazy that their parents would reject the will of God and pray against God's will. Parents, when your child has been called of God to go somewhere and do something in a place that you might not like or might not approve of, please understand that their obedience to God overrides them honoring you as their parent. That is a hard truth to understand. And as a parent, it's a truth I have to accept myself. Only God can command a higher loyalty, and he absolutely will if you as a parent stand in the way of your child pursuing the will of God. Don't make them choose between honoring God and honoring you. That's a manipulative way to get what you want. Following Jesus Christ takes precedence over every other relationship in this world. That's not to say that God can't give you wisdom. Sometimes kids, man, 18, 19 years old, they want to hit the ground running and and run off into the world and 
light the place on fire for Jesus, that's great, but it also needs wisdom. And so it's perfectly fine to help them pray with them and give them godly counsel. But when they feel like they've got a word from the Lord, you better be careful and don't stand in their way. Discipleship requires a radical shift in priorities. Jesus must be first. He must be Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He will not accept second place to anyone or anything. Even a good thing, such as honoring your parents, cannot take the place of the best thing, which is honoring Christ with all your heart, mind, and strength. When a farmer started, so let's look at what Jesus responded. He said, no one is, who, who puts their hand to the plow is, and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When a farmer started plowing his field, he had to lean forward on the plow with all of his weight to keep the blade in the ground. His free hand would hold the reins of the oxen. Then he would choose a landmark at the end of his field to keep his oxen moving in a straight line. If he turned and looked back, even for a moment, he would lose his line. He would pull the reins and his field would be plowed crooked. And you know, the first thing that dad is going to say when he walks outside is said, your line's crooked. I plowed 7,000 acres, but your line's crooked. Jesus' spiritual lesson to us is that if we look back at our old life of sin with longing, like Lot's wife looked back at Sodom, like the Israelites looked back to return to slavery in Egypt, like these three would-be disciples looked back for whatever reason to not follow, then we are not fit or useful for the kingdom of God. We cannot live with one foot in both worlds. We must look forward in anticipation of what God is doing and not fix our gaze on our rearview mirror at what might have been. The message and the mission of the Messiah cannot wait. The message and the mission of the Messiah cannot wait. It must take our absolute top priority. Anything less is half-hearted discipleship and is something that Jesus will not accept. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up. I'm sorry, our worship team to come up. We had two questions come in. The first question is, at this time on his way to Jerusalem, how many days or weeks is Jesus from his death? It's really hard to say. It's really hard to say at this point. We know that there's a series of events. If you're looking at Luke chapter 9 uh, in Matthew chapter 8, you understand that Matthew has... Uh, 28, 29 chapters, Luke has 24 chapters or so. So there's a lot of things that are going to take place. Now, not everything in future chapters of Matthew and Luke are necessarily chronological, but a lot of them are future from this point forward. So there's a lot of things Jesus has left to do and say and teach. So it's weeks, I would imagine. Jesus has made his way all around the area, and now he is beginning his what some commentators believe his final journey towards Jerusalem. So we don't really know. We don't really know how long this journey will take. We know how long it'll take us to get through it. Probably a couple years. Uh, so don't go anywhere. Um, but, uh, 
but it is uh, quite the journey that you will see from here forward. The second question, is the sacrifice made by Elisha not like spreading the gospel? Um, so I'm not, I'm not clear as far as what, what, you're, uh, what the question is really asking, so let me just kind of address maybe what, what I interpret, what I think you're asking. Um, Elisha makes a sacrifice to God in 1 Kings 19, which is, uh, which is a tremendous sacrifice to the Lord. Um, it's a very costly sacrifice um, to God. And so we understand that, that uh, elsewhere in Scripture, um, David is, is wanting to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and people are, are giving him things. And he said, no, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Sacrifice is costly. It costs something. And so uh, while Elisha definitely made a, a tremendous sacrifice, a costly sacrifice, God accepted the sacrifice and didn't penalize Elisha for what he did. Elisha and Elijah weren't under the same time pressure that Jesus was. And that, I believe, is the difference. We see all three objections from these men in Luke 9 in the life of Elisha. And uh, so for us, we understand that we need, to, uh, we need to be busy about the kingdom of God. We need to be proclaiming uh, about Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, because we don't know when he'll return. We need to have a sense of urgency. I would say for us, let's not respond the way Elisha did. We go home and we, we, uh, we get busy doing all these things and we say all our goodbyes and hug all the necks and then we go. We need to have a sense of urgency that the world is dying without the gospel of Jesus Christ. People all over the world are dying without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all it takes is for the church to rise up and be the church, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples of all nations. And so I would, it's, I don't know if that answered your question. If it didn't, you're welcome to email me. My email is in the bulletin. If there's more to it, if you'd like me to elaborate, uh, I would definitely uh, like to do that. Um, would you stand with me this morning? None of these three men gave unreasonable requests to Jesus. Taking care of our home and domestic responsibilities is reasonable. Taking care of sick family members is reasonable. Saying goodbye to loved ones before you leave, before you leave them indefinitely is reasonable. But our acceptance of Christ means that we wholly surrender to him. Ask yourself, am I merely a believer or am I a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Trusting in Jesus is a first foundational step, but it's the first step of many. Your primary purpose is to take a lifelong journey following Jesus' footsteps. You must be committed to complete and absolute obedience. It's easy to think, I will follow you, but yet our response must unequivocally and unwaveringly be, I will follow. We must remain faithful to God's plan when it isn't easy and when it's, when, when it's easy and when it's hard, when it leads to blessing or when it leads to suffering, when we know where he's leading us and even when we don't. Matthew twenty two fourteen it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. The call has gone out. 
And it's still going out. Whatever your background, you are called to go into a deeper relationship with Christ. You are being called away from sin and called to Him. And Jesus made it clear that being a disciple, being one of His disciples, it has a price tag attached. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. And it always appears in that order. We don't follow him and then deny ourselves and then take up our cross. We first deny ourselves. We first come to the realization we cannot save ourselves. And we deny ourselves. We reject pride. We take up our cross and we follow him. We might think about all the things that we're giving up to follow him. All the pleasures, all the relationships, all the friendships, all the wealth. And Jesus responded, the one who finds life here will lose it there. But the one who loses his life here will find it there. It was only as his disciples acted on Christ's call that the true significance of his words became a reality for them. In time, all the confusion would disappear and they would experience the excitement of giving their lives totally for the cause of Christ. So the question remains, are you a believer in Christ or are you a follower of Christ? Are you building your life on Jesus Christ or are you building it upon yourself? Three men could have become disciples that day, but they wouldn't meet the conditions that Jesus laid down. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And no wonder. The problem isn't with the harvest. The problem is with the workers. The problem is the workers won't go to work. They won't accept the call of complete surrender to Christ. And now the question turns to each one of us. What will you do when Jesus comes and he says, follow me? Will he be met with excuses or obedience? Will you build your life on yourself or will you build your life on Jesus Christ? As the worship team leads us in a final song, if you need to make a commitment to Christ, if you need to recommit your life to Christ, if you recognize that there's one area of your life that is not in total surrender to Jesus, I invite you to raise both hands as a sign of your surrender and give him your all right here and right now. Worship team, lead us in a song.